Happy uh, 2024. I was <laughs> I was feeling good about 2024 till this week. Um, Short lived. No, I I really did. I thought, man, 2024 is going to be a good year, and uh, it still could be. We got time to get this stuff worked out. Um, hopefully, get the snow melted off and see what uh, is lying underneath. But uh, I was thinking about <laughs> this is. This is not part of the sermon, so just so you know. Um, but how, when you're when you're doing okay, you know, when you have heat and power, and and uh, your cars aren't, you know, broke down and not uh, in a ditch or anything, that you kind of feel like okay, like I, this is okay. It's not so bad. The it's not terrible. It's I mean, it's a lot of snow and a little bit of digging out and stuff, but. I was thinking about the people that that have you know been in the ditch and uh, needed some help and and uh, maybe were looking for somebody to come by to to push them out or pull them out or dig them out or maybe don't have power don't have you know enough food to get through the next couple of days and like they're they're needing some help and um, you know the last few days I have been in a position to help some people um, you know one guy was stuck in the middle of the road and. And I wasn't, so I just jumped out and pushed his truck so he could get off, you know, out of the road a little bit. And, um, you know, another time, helped somebody dig out a little so they could move their vehicle. And you think about when you are in that position, um, when you're not, you're not the one who needs help, but you're in a position to help somebody. Um, that's that's kind of like what the gospel is really about. Um, it's it, in two ways. One is... As a believer, you know, you have the truth and you have assurance and you have confidence and you have hope. You have forgiveness, you have grace and mercy, you have all these blessings from the Lord. And um, it, it, sometimes it's easy to forget that the people around you don't have that. The people who don't know the Lord don't have that. They don't even know that they're in need. Um, and sometimes it does take us to just invite, just to... You know, say whether you realize it or not. You know, you need the Lord, and to help people to see that they could come, they could come in here. And I was just thinking about how, you know, a lot of times we uh, we we as a church tend to try to make sure we have a church service. Um, we don't cancel if we can at all help it. Um, and part of the reason for that is just. We want to make sure that we're giving God all the glory that he deserves and giving people the opportunity that that if they want to come and hear and see and and worship, then they have an opportunity to do that. Um, but just how so often there is nothing preventing people from going to church. Like there's no it's no there's no weather issue. There's no schedule conflict. It's just, uh, you know, week to week. There's no real reason why people don't come to church other than. Um, number one, maybe they don't realize that they're invited, that they are welcome, that they could be in this place with any and all of us just to, you know, see what God is about. And so I, I, I wonder if sometimes when we have the gospel and we have the hope and we have, you know, the truth, if we're as conscious about helping people as maybe we are when they're stuck in a ditch. But it's kind of the same scenario. You're in this position, and they're in this position. You can help lift them out. 
The other thing is that, I guess you're getting a couple sermons this morning. So that's what the gospel is about in general to all of us because God is in the position to always be a blessing and a help and a, and a savior and we're always in need even if we don't know it and if we don't realize it. And at some point what happened was God reached down and you and I accepted the, the offer and the help that he was always willing to give. And so he lifted us out of our sin and our desperate position to bring us into uh, a right relationship with himself. That's what the gospel is. It's God lifting us out of that. It's not because you're super smart or super special. You're, it's just somehow you clicked with what he was offering and you received it. And that's the same offer that he's offering to everybody. That there's nobody too lost and there's nobody too wrong. There's nobody too sinful that God isn't wanting to rescue them. Um, and so um, this morning we're talking about this this uh, interesting uh, little story that's kind of embedded in, in between two stories that we're pretty familiar with. And so we're, we're looking at the, the lesser known stories um, in Scripture for however long uh, we're going to do this. I don't have an end to what, <laughs> when this is going to conclude. Uh, but the, the idea, I was thinking about these lesser known stories, the, the idea that the, why they're lesser known. Why, why is it that there are some really fantastic victories and, and stories in Scripture and people in Scripture that uh, we just as a church, you know, and as Christians in general don't seem to really focus in on? And, and part of the reason is because uh, one, we're going to be in the book of Numbers this morning. Okay, how many of you have the book of Numbers on your regular reading list? Like every every year, you're reading through the book of Numbers. Some people who read through the Bible, you've you, you've read these stories. And if you're reading through the Bible, you know, once or twice a year, or once every two years, or however, you know, you have your pattern of reading through Scripture. You're going to read these stories. And you're you're going to hear these things. You're going to remember. Oh yeah, I've read that. I, I understand that, or I've heard about that. But most people, when you're reading scripture, you kind of avoid some of these books that you think, well, they're just not as inspiring to me. There's too many names I can't pronounce, and there's too many genealogies I don't understand. And, and so te- people tend to skip over the book of Numbers, and they don't know a lot of the stuff that's in this book. And then that's one reason why some of these stories are lesser known, because we're going to be pulling them from, from books that people aren't necessarily really familiar with. The other reason is because... They're not the focus of, of what's going on in Scripture. When, when you see God's plan for the Israelites, and we're going to be talking about God leading them into the promised land. When you see that God promised them Israel, and so all the things that led up to them receiving their inheritance, um, some of these things are kind of like just things that happened along the way. They're not the focus. They weren't the part of God's promise. And so we don't tend to really dig into them so much. Um, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, this is where we're going to see the, the story of uh, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Okay, you got that? Easy to remember? 
Um, and so these two kings, the Israelites' defeat, is in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 21. And before this, in chapter 21, we have the story of the Israelites in the wilderness getting bitten by snakes, by vipers, right? And then some of them are dying, and they're crying out, and God gives Moses. He says, build a bronze snake, put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp, so if people get bitten by snakes, they can look at the pole, at the bronze snake on the pole, and they can be healed, right? Remember that story? We, we talk about that sometimes because it is a prefiguring of the Savior, of Christ, that Jesus would be lifted up. He says, if I be lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. And so it was the conclusion or the fulfillment of that bronze snake thing that happened back there. So we're kind of familiar with that because it's a, a Christ uh, prefiguring. And then in chapter 22, you have the story of Balaam, who is a he, I don't know, he's kind of a weird figure, but, but he's a guy who's an oracle, and so he somehow gets prophetic visions from the Lord. Um, he's hired by Balak, who is the king of the, the Moabites, uh, to curse the Israelites. And so on the way uh, to do this, remember, his donkey talks to him. So we're pretty familiar with that story just because it's so weird, right? Which <laughs> is like, that is bizarre. But then you have this story right in the between those of Sion and Og, and we're like, who are these people and what's going on here? So let's dig into that. Let's find out what's going on. It is uh, Numbers 21 and starting in verse 21. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. It says, Then Israel sent messengers, messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, uh, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and it's all in all its villages. And Father, we thank you for your word for unexpected victories, Lord. When we least expect it, when we weren't even thinking that you were going to pour out your blessing, a victory, your spirit, your power, um, uh, uh, fulfill a promise, Lord, there you are, moving, working, and, and, and doing things that uh, we have no right to even expect. Um, but you're good, and you're gracious, and you're merciful, and you're powerful. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we get to be your people, that we get to be uh, your servants who follow you wherever you lead us. And so we pray that you would lead us where you want us to go, give us hearts that are open and receptive and understanding and willing and uh, Lord, the future may not be clear to us, but uh, our leader is. And so uh, we're going to follow you wherever you go. Thank you for that. Um, we pray that you would just pave the way. Be our, our God before us, behind us, with us, around us. Um, and, and we'll just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we're looking at this story in the middle of Numbers, I just want you to kind of understand where the Israelites are in their, their history, okay, in their story. 
Uh, what has happened? They've been delivered out of Egypt as a people. They've been um, given this safe passage through the Red Sea. The whole Red Sea fell on the Egyptian army, destroyed it. Um, they went to uh, Mount Sinai and received the law for about a year. They were camped out there. Uh, then they went to spy out the land. Remember the, the land of Israel. And the spies went, 12 spies. Caleb and uh, Joshua were two of the spies, and there were, there were 10 others. But Caleb and Joshua said, yeah, it's, it's great, fruitful, um, but the cities are, are fortified, the people are huge and all this stuff. But we can, we can do it because God's with us. And the other 10 said, yeah, all that stuff is true, but we can't do it. They're, they're going to defeat us. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. You know, we're just tiny little people, and they're these huge people. And so the people believed the ten spies instead of the two spies. And so God said, you're going to wander as many days as you were spying out the land, 40 days. You're going to wander for that many years, 40 years. And that whole generation is going to die. So anybody who's 20 years or older was going to die except for Caleb, Joshua, and Moses and Aaron. Of course, Moses and Aaron actually do die before they enter the promised land. They're 120 plus years old, but uh, they're going to live an extended life. Now... What's happening is that uh, they have, <laughs> the 40 years of wandering is a little bit of a misnomer. They, they end up spending 38 years in one basic camp, in Kadesh Barnea, okay? So Kadesh, this may be another lesser known thing, but in Kadesh Barnea, it's, it's the wilderness or the desert area south of Israel between Israel and the Sinai Peninsula, Okay, if you're familiar with some geography, you kind of get a picture of where that's at. But it's just this un- uninhabited and uninhabitable place because God is basically going to set the clock and 40 years is going to go by and all, this whole generation is going to die and uh, he's going to feed them miraculously with manna. He's going to bring water out of the rock and they're just going to wait. So they're kind of just camped out in this one little place called Kadesh Barnea. Finally... At the end of that, God says, it's time to go. The last of the, that generation is gone, and you're ready to move into the promised land. And this, So they begin to head north, and instead of going straight north, which they could have done, it was, uh, it was possible that they could just go from where they were right into Israel. Uh, but God says, no, go around to the east, so you have the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, um, in between where they're at and where they need to be, which is the promised land. But he's gonna, he has a particular plan for them. So they go up to the east and north, and the first place that they come to is, is Edom. And Edom, God says, do not fight against Edom. Those are your cousins. Um, and so they, they're, I'm not going to give you their land. I'm not going to uh, give you victory. Um, you can ask for safe passage along the King's Highway. The King's Highway was, was through kind of more of a fertile plain, and it was green, and it was, you know, they had water. And it says, if you go up the King's Highway, um, you need to ask for safe passage. And so you're going to have to pay for your food. You're going to have to pay for your water. You can't steal anything. You're going you're to tell them that you're coming in peace. And Edom says, no, you cannot pass through here. We don't want you coming through. And so they say, all right, we'll go the desert highway. So they have to go more to the east, and they continue to go north. And uh, it's not quite as good of a road, but that's what they got to do. So they go, and they kind of skirt around Edom, and now they come to Heshbon. And this is where Sion is king, king of the Ammonites, Amorites, sorry, 
And, uh, and he's, again, they're going to say, we'll pass through. Um, we won't steal anything. We won't fight you. We're not going to conquer you. We're not going to, we'll, we, we'll pay for everything that we eat and drink. Um, it'll actually be, you know, a good economic decision for you. You can, we have plenty of money. We just raided the, the Egyptians. We have all kinds of money and nowhere to spend it. And so if you want to just let us go through, you could profit from this. And they're like trying to, you know, tell them we're not here to, to conquer you. And uh, Sion says, no deal. I don't want you coming through my land. But Sion, this king of Heshbon, says he's not under God's protection. He, he, he is actually under God's judgment. And so when he opposes God's people, God says, okay, you can conquer them. You can fight them. You can destroy them. And you can take their land. Because what they had done, Sion and Og both, they had conquered the Moabites and taken their land. So they had actually um, felt like they were pretty powerful people. They'd already come in and they had destroyed a people group and, and eliminated them and took their land. And so they think they're pretty strong. And Israel, now it's been a while since they've really had any victories. Okay, They came through the Red Sea and the, the Egyptian army was destroyed. And then they had another battle that they won that was pretty big deal where Moses' arms were lifted up. You remember that? And, but uh, it's been a while, and they've just been kind of camped out for, for about 40 years. And so Sion thinks, you know, they didn't pass through Edom. We're more powerful than, than Edom, and uh, they didn't bother to attack them. So, you know, if, if, if they try to attack us, we'll, we'll just destroy them. Uh, what do you, you have all these people that are just nomads. They've just been camped out in the wilderness. They can't do anything to us. And so he opposes God, and God brings judgment. Now, here's the thing. That, you know, you have to try to wrestle with. We should not be in the mindset of, of Sion, okay? We're, we're, we're people who want to know what God's will is and get in line with God's will and obey what God's direction is and figure out what his plan is and what his path is for our lives. That's, that's what, as Christians, that's our job is to discern God's will and to do God's will, but if you look at it from the other side, you say there are times when people will oppose God. They'll oppose God's will. They'll oppose God's word. They'll oppose God's people. They'll, they, they will mock and blaspheme. And you think about the, these are not just people who just choose not to believe or don't have faith. Sometimes what you see is that people who don't have faith and don't believe will go an extra step to trying to mock your faith. Have you ever seen that or experienced that? It, it happens all the time. If you get online and, and you see people who are, uh, they think that they're super smart because they believe in science. And uh, as Christians, I don't know if you realize this, um, we also believe in science. Um, I don't know if you realize that. We, we don't believe that science is not real or science isn't accurate. Uh, what we understand, what we believe is that God designed the whole universe so intricately that man has spent thousands of years trying to figure out how God did it. And we, we have uncovered um, a minuscule amount of information that God embedded into every aspect of this creation we're still trying to figure out 
DNA. We're still trying to figure out the mapping of, of the neurons in the human brain. We're, we don't even know, we don't even understand consciousness. As human beings, um, we've gotten really smart, but we still don't know that much about what God designed and put into his creation. And so science is like trying to figure all this, this basically intelligence that, that God has that, that we haven't even come close to catching up to in all the advancements that we have medically and all the advancements that we have with every aspect of science. We've not even come close to understanding a fraction of the intelligence that God has and that he has put into his creation. Science does not disprove God. It proves God everywhere that you look. But those that say, you know, we as Christians, we believe in this book and they believe in science and we're idiots because we believe that the Bible is true and we basically just reject science wholesale. That's not true. But there is, there has been this push for a long time that uh, that they're incompatible. Science and Christianity, science and faith are incompatible. That you have to take a side. You have to either believe science and reject God, or believe God and reject science. And that's not true. But what's happening is that there's this satanic, and this is what it is. Every time that you have this push. Not just that people don't believe in God, but a push to get people who believe in God to reject him, that's satanic. That is a movement of the enemy to try to do a reverse evangelism. We're trying to pull people out of faith into despair, into atheism, into naturalism. That That is, in a sense, what Sion is, he's a... He's not just rejecting God's plan. He is in opposition to it. He wants to stand in the way of it. He wants to destroy what God is doing. And whenever you see that, you, you can, as a believer, you say, well, what's going on here? What do I do with that? How do I deal with that? And so here's what we see the Israelites are doing. God has said um, in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12 that as far as it concerns you, um, as, if it's possible, be at peace with everyone. This is Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, peaceably with all. Um, it's, it's one of those passages where there's a, there's a lot of qualifications for this. Um, but it is what Moses did. Moses is still alive at this time in their history. He hasn't died yet. He is going to die before they go into the promised land. But at this point, he's still leading the people. And he sends a message of peace. He says, we're not here to destroy you. We're not even here to oppose you. We're, we're, we just want to get along. And, for, and so um, we're trying to be at peace. But, you know, at some point, if the people won't let you be at peace, then you have to be obedient. That's the next step. But as far as the gospel is concerned, it says this, that if it's, if it's possible and if it's up to you, then be at peace. So what that means is sometimes it's not up to you because you do everything that you can to be at peace and to be agreeable and to be kind. And then you have people that are going to be in your life. And I'm going to say almost guaranteed that you're going to have people in your life that are going to not allow for there to be peace because they're, they're in such opposition 
to you, to your faith, to what you, your, your values are. And they're going to oppose you. And at some point, as far as you're concerned, you're going to be kind and you're going to be gracious and you're going to be forgiving. But you're going to look like you're not afraid of conflict because you're going to stand on the truth and you're going to speak the truth and you're not going to budge from that. What God's will is for your life, what you understand God saying to you about how you're supposed to live your life and how you're supposed to continue forward in your life, you're going to say, I I can't not do that. And so if you're not going to, you know, be at peace with me because I'm going to stay on God's path, then I'm going to have to leave you behind. And we're not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. We're not trying to be mean to anybody. But when it comes down to conviction, you say, I'm going to live according to the conviction of God's word and his spirit within me and his will for my life. And I'm going to be obedient to that. And sometimes that means that you don't get to have the kind of relationships with people that you wish that you could. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And it will cause division in families, in the closest of relationships between parents and children, between uh, even sometimes a husband and a wife. He says that that when you receive the gospel and your life becomes one with Christ and this is your your sole focus in life is what is God's will? What does he want for me? How am I supposed to live according to what he has said? And the people around you say, I want to do my thing or I don't want you to continue to do your thing because it makes me feel guilty. Then you got to you got to continue forward. And sometimes you got to leave people behind. And as Christians... Here's what I think is sometimes the problem with the church as a whole is we're so afraid of conflict and we're so afraid of offending people that what the church has done, by and large, in a lot of places in this country especially, is compromise with the world to try to get along with the world, to water down what the word says in order to have a message that's not so offensive to people. So we'll, we won't say that it's exclusively through faith in Jesus. We'll start to water that down and say, well, maybe, maybe you can just believe in God in general and that'll be okay. Or, it, you know, God's standards really don't really apply to you. Those are old-fashioned. And so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and pull our standards from the world. And so if the world says it's okay to live together before you get married, then we're going to just agree with that and say, well, at least, you know, they, they are monogamous. And uh, that, that should be fine. And, uh, you know, even if the, the Bible says that, you know, some hard things, we won't really talk about those things. We'll just talk about the easy things. And you have huge churches in this country, the biggest churches in this country that are actually promoting the idea that we will not tell people what sin is. We will only tell them about the nice things that people like. And they're upfront about that. They have it on their websites. They, their pastors get up in front of TV cameras on national programs and say, I don't talk about sin. I only talk about good things, about love and, and, and grace and, and mercy. And those. I don't talk about obedience or sin or problems that the sin creates or Satan or any of those things because people don't like to hear that. So we'll just talk about they're actually admitting up front that they only talk about about a third of what the Bible talks about because that's what people want to hear, which scripture says there will be teachers in your day who this is what scripture says, who will tell people what they want to hear to to scratch their itching ears. And he says, that is heresy, that is apostasy, that is the, going to be the, the downfall of the church. 
is when you have this happening wholesale. And as Christians, we have to speak the truth in love. We, we love people. We love people enough to tell them the real truth and to live according to God's will. And so what happens is Moses and the people of God say, even though we don't want to fight, we're going to have to fight. And God gives them an unexpected victory. And so that whole land, so from north of, of Edom on the east side of the Jordan River, okay, um, that whole land was not the promised land. It wasn't part of the promised land, but God gave that to Israel as part of their inheritance because of the opposition of Sion, king of Heshbon. They continue north, and the next region is uh, Bashan. And so, again... Israel's willing to offer peace, but before they can even do that, Og comes out with his whole army. I mean, Og does seem like a tough name, don't, don't you think? Like, but he, he is. He's got a big army. He's, got, he's powerful. Um, he comes out, and God says, I'll give you his land too. So they fight them and destroy them and take all their land. And so now they have not only just, just around the Dead Sea area on the east side of the Jordan, all the way up to north of the Sea of Galilee. That's a huge piece of land that they just got for free, right? It wasn't part of the promise. It was just something that God gave them because of the opposition. And here's the thing with Og, and I don't know if you, if you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 3, you see some things about him that are very, very interesting. It says that he is the last of the Rephaites. Anybody know who the Rephaites are? The famous Rephaites, you don't know? It's a joke. Um, what did you say? Oh, the rock and roll band, yeah. Um, no, so the name in Hebrew literally means giant. That's what the name in Hebrew means. So, and then it describes in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, Og's bed. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but Og's bed uh, was... Uh, 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. You ever read that in Deuteronomy chapter 3 before and just kind of scratch your head? Like, I just, I, I'm going to be honest. This is embarrassing. But I, I read that and I just thought, well, he wants a king-size bed. <laughs> Who doesn't? Maybe that's where this name king-size bed comes from. He's a king and he has this huge bed. And so we're like, yeah, it's a king-size bed. But uh, the the word means Rephaite means giant and then you have a description of his bed that's 13 feet long and six feet wide and uh, the reference there is that it probably wasn't his bed that he slept on every night it was probably his tomb or his sarcophagus or his coffin this is the the size of the thing that they they had to put him in because he's so gigantic he is actually a giant and so whether it's his bed or not, I guess it doesn't matter. If you're that big, you still need a big bed. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. So here you have Og, who is a giant. Um, you have the two references coming together to clarify, to confirm he is a giant. I don't know if he's actually 13 feet tall, but he's huge. And why that's important is because the Israelites, why were they afraid to go into the promised land to begin with? Because they were afraid of giants. They, they thought the Anakites are there, and the Anakites were the descendants of, of these giants, and they're these huge people. And we see later in their history, David, if, this is 
what, another four, 400, 500 years later after this, about 500 years later, that David is still going to be fighting giants and Goliath is nine foot tall something. And he, they're still fighting giants. And then you read through more history and there were actually five other giants in the land that they were still fighting against and killed. And one guy had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and all this kind of stuff. You see these descriptions like, man, these are freaks. Like, what's going on? But anyway, they have these this giant and God just says, here you go on a silver platter. You're afraid to go into the promised land, but here's a giant you didn't even know about that I'm just going to hand over to you and you're, you're good. And it can build some confidence and you can have some assurance that when it's time to go into the promised land, you're ready. There's nothing to fear. And it's not because you're so powerful. It's because I'm with you. And if you'll do what I say and you'll do it how I say, then you'll never have to worry about failure. Because I will assure that your, your victory every step of the way. And so they get that whole land, 60 cities, fortified cities. They destroy, they take over. And now they, they've just um, increased their inheritance by a third that they had the promised land. Now they have all this land and they have both sides of the, the Jordan River and they have the Sea of Galilee and, and they have a water source and they have all this stuff. And it's just, it was unexpected. Just God said, here you go. And here's what happens is that there's this pattern that emerges that if they, they do this, they always have victory. They go and they spy out the land. They get special instructions. They obey the special instructions, and then they have victory. That's the pattern. Every time they did that, they won. When they didn't do that, they lost. There are two times in Joshua that they didn't do that, chapter 7 and chapter 9. And what happens in chapter 7 is they had this thing when they d- destroyed uh, Jericho. Um, they were told everything is, is uh, dedicated to destruction. Don't take anything. All the gold, silver, wealth, all the money, all the clothes, all the stuff that's valuable, just burn it all. Don't take anything. The whole city is devoted to destruction, every last piece. Well, there's one guy, Aiken, said... These things are kind of nice, and, and he didn't think anybody would see him. He shoved some gold in his pockets, and he kind of put a cloak under his, his robe or whatever. And he hid them in the bottom of his tent, and he thought, nobody saw me, nobody, I'm good. And so that one guy caused thousands of people to die because the next battle in Joshua chapter 7, they go out to fight this tiny little area called Ai. Okay, the, it's literally spelled Ai. And so they go out and they're like, oh, this, is, this isn't even worth, like, uh, our whole army. Just send a few thousand guys out there and we can destroy this easy. So they send their army in and they get clearly defeated so badly. They're like, what is going on? And they realize that there's been sin in the camp. And they, number one, they did spy it out. But two, they did not seek special instruction. They didn't seek God's will. They didn't, they didn't go into prayer and say, God, what do you want us to do here? They didn't discern and they got defeated. The next one was in, in Joshua chapter 9, and you have the, what was famously called the Gibeonite deception. You've heard that? No. Okay, so what happens is that the Gibeonites were a people in Israel. They were not to make any treaties with any of the people in Israel at all. The Gibeonites are seeing and hearing that the Israelites are just defeating people in towns and, and lands all over the place. And nobody can stand against them. And so they said, we'll deceive them. And they put like 
rotten food in their bags, and they took old worn-out sandals and old worn-out clothes, and they went to the Israelites like, oh, we're from far away. Look at our food, how long we've traveled. Our bread that was fresh when we left is moldy and gross and stale now, and so we've been really on the road a long time. And they just said, oh, okay, cool, we'll make a treaty with you, because they were starting to feel pretty good about themselves, like, man, we're getting famous. People are hearing about us from a long ways away and wanting to have a treaty with us. And so they make a treaty with the Gibeonites, and so they didn't discern God's will, and they ended up not doing God's will. Now, here's why I say that. You're like, why are we off on this tangent? Anybody think that? Like, well, did you just go on a rabbit trail? I did not. Okay. The deal is this. When you discern God's will, you are safe. When you're outside of his will, you're in danger. Every time, every step of the way. This is, this is what it means to be a believer, to be a Christian, is to have this one focus. I know there's a lot of things that we're supposed to do as believers, okay? But there's this one thing that is the, the clarity for all the rest of it. God, what do you want? What is your will? And as soon as I know and understand that, that's what I do. I don't question Anything else. It it might be hard. It might be difficult. It might not even make sense. But when I clearly understand what God's will is, then my job as a believer is just to put myself on his page and then let him take care of all the details. Why, Why would this tiny little area, AI, be able to defeat the Israelites who are... Their, their oldest guy... Okay, they got two guys that are 80. But their oldest guy after that, the whole country, is 59 and younger. They're a young country. They're a young group of, of like a couple million people or, or more. There's no way that this tiny little area should have been able to defeat them. But because they said, we're not going to do things God's way, way. We're going to do things our own way. And what's going to happen is they're going to get defeated. But then they're going to go up against giants. And they're going to go up against powerful nations. They're going to go up against people that they have no right to even th- expect to be able to defeat. And God's with them. And they can conquer Anything that, that God puts in front of them. And this is what, this is what it means to be a believer, is that when I put myself in God's hands, He has the victory. I don't have to worry. I'm not afraid. I'm not concerned with the future because He is God. And I'm in His hand. So, this little story of unexpected victory is really about you and I having a, an expectation that God can handle my life. I just need to put my life in his hands. Amen? And Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, we love you. We, we give you praise that you're um, in complete control. Lord, there's nothing in this world that you cannot handle. Um, but, Lord, we pray that we would have the wisdom um, to simply seek after you. Seek after your presence, your power, your, your will. Um, to have a humble heart to say, I don't understand everything I'm supposed to do, but as much as I understand, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what you've called me to. I'm going to, I'm going to live the way that you've called me to. And where I'm not understanding something, where I'm failing, where I'm outside of your will, Lord, um, please forgive me and, and give me um, direction. Show me. Uh, help me. And, uh, Lord, we'll, we'll get back on your page. Lord, we don't want to be off of your page ever at all for any reason. Um, Sometimes we will find ourselves in in the wrong place, in the wrong time, in the wrong way. 
um, Lord, but I pray that that's not intentional, that whatever we fail to do is, is, uh, is purely by ignorance or accident, Lord, not, not by rebellion or disobedience. And so, Father, as a, as a church, Lord, I pray that we would have that heart to seek after you, um, to do hard things, to be willing to speak the truth in love, even when it means that not everybody's going to like us or agree with us. But, Lord, we have the, the hope of eternal life. We have it in our hearts. We have it in our hands. Help us to uh, share it. Help us to offer it. Help us to invite people to it. And, Lord, you got to do the rest. Saving people, we can't do that. We can't change people's hearts. All we can do is, is speak the truth and invite them to, to trust you as well. And that's what we do for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning um, just to respond to the Holy Spirit working in your life. Maybe there's a, a victory right around the corner that you are, weren't expecting, that you're not expecting, that, but you need to just get on God's page. And right now, maybe you're kind of over here on your own page and thinking that you can handle things on your own, and God's telling you, that's not going to work. And uh, if you're ready, get on his page. He's got victories for you. He's got the very next step and the next step after that. He might not have the whole thing all the way to the end, but he'll show, show you what is next. Amen? And so let's just stand and praise him this morning.